I want to give you some context first. I think context helps understand why this is here and why what Jesus said these things. So <clears throat> Mark chapter 8 uh, starts off. If you just look in your Bible, uh, Jesus feeds 4,000. So Jesus demonstrates, again, that he is God. He shows very clearly that he, not just a man, not just a really clever thinker, uh, but he is God. He performs a miracle, multiplies the loaves, feeds 4,000. And it's a miracle. That's what it is. It's not just a really cool thing. It's a miracle. And the disciples are just, whoa, Jesus, you, that was pretty great. You fed it great. We love sandwiches. That was great. The next thing that happens is Jesus heals, <clears throat> in verse 22, uh, Jesus heals a blind man. So again, another miracle of Jesus very clearly showing that I have power not over natural things, not just like food and weather, as he does in before, but I can even heal people's disease. I can take away blindness, which is just amazing. Um, he's need LASIK. He just does it, right? But what's interesting about this blind man, if you're aware of this text in Mark chapter 8, a lot of people get thrown off by it. So what happens is Jesus goes to this man, lays his hands on him, and he says, can you see? And what, what, what's the blind guy say? Ah, kinda. And then Jesus goes, oh, I'll do it again. Then he heals the man. First time he says, yeah, the people look like trees walking. So something going on, something weird. And then Jesus lays his hands on him again, and his sight was restored. You, you might think, well, that's a weird. Did Jesus, like, forget how to heal? Why did he do that? What Jesus is doing is he's demonstrating that there's a way that you can see Jesus, but not see him correctly. So you can see, but you're not seeing right. So it's not that Jesus is kind of like, oh, my power's half working. It's, this, this is a picture to demonstrate that some people think they can see, but they can't really see. Does that make sense? That's why it's there. And then the next text, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. So Jesus says, who do you say I am? And they go, oh, some people think you're a prophet, some people think you're this. And my favorite person in the Bible is probably Peter. Quick, shoot, aim Peter. He just shoots his mouth off and just, oh, I shouldn't have done that. He's, he's like Barney from Andrew Griffith's show. He's just a goof, I think. And Peter just messes up. And he, but now he says, you're the Christ. You're Jesus. You're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, that's right. So you see Jesus demonstrating his deity, and then a blind man, like, well, I think I see, but I can't really see. And then Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then look at verse 31, where we're going to start. This is the first point here. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and for three days rise again. So Jesus now immediately begins to say, so Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior that came into the world to save us, to save the world. We should rightly assume, first of all, that Jesus taught this from the Bible. And Luke chapter 24, Luke shows us that Jesus, after he is raised from the dead, shows the disciples that all of the Bible is about him. Are you aware of that? So Moses, Jonah, the book of Genesis, every Old Testament book is about Jesus. They're all pictures of him. It's not about Jonah being great. It's about Jesus being the better Jonah. All the Old Testament is about Jesus. So we, we can probably safely assume when Jesus taught them from the scriptures that what he did is he opened up his Bible, or he knew it from memory, either way, but he taught them from the Bible. Text maybe like Psalm 22 about Jesus. Maybe Isaiah 53, you could probably guess. It's weird that the Messiah would suffer, that the Savior of the world of both Jews and Gentiles 
will be rejected by the ones he came to save. It's a weird thing that Jesus would come and die. The disciples are just hearing this. You'll see the reaction here in a minute. Jesus would be despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was bruised, struck, forsaken, abandoned. He was betrayed, lied to, arrested, accused, accused falsely. He was hit, whipped, spat upon, shamed, killed. I mean, everything just awful. Betrayed, lied to, murdered on a tree, mocked. Jesus experienced the fullness of pain. Jesus walked through death. So when we're scared of death, Jesus walked through death. You don't go through death alone. He walked through death before you. So as a kind of a helpful note here to consider, the Jesus of the Bible suffered. He didn't just command and say, oh, just, just persevere, I'll watch. Jesus suffered for you. He suffered with you. The Jesus that sends pain and affliction your way, he sends them from scarred hands. They're not coming from an angry God. If you're a Christian, when God sends things your way, it comes from a hand that's been cut and it's bled. Do you understand how good that is, that your God suffered? He's a suffering Savior. It's, we forget sometimes that our maker literally descended to the pit, was bruised and was killed. So your pain to him is not abnormal. He understands. He can sympathize with pain because not only has he suffered, but he sends it from those same hands. It's good news that Jesus suffered. What he allots to you, he measured out. And he suffered many things in order that he might give us much joy, is what the Bible says. Look at verse 32. So Mark adds this inspired little commentary here. He says that Jesus said this plainly. So I love the Bible. It's very honest. It never hides anyone's sin. Never hides foolish thing. It's very open because it has nothing to fear. So Mark adds that he said this very plainly. Uh, one of the positive things that you can earn from this is when you are teaching someone about the Bible, whether it be your children, an unbeliever, your, your parents, your friends, teach them plainly. You don't need to impress them with the Bible. Teach them plainly. Give them the simple gospel truth. Warn them of their sins. Tell them of God's holiness. Warn them of hell. Tell them that Jesus can save the worst of sinners. Just teach them plainly. We, we must seek to be helpful. And what's funny, again, Mark says this, and then what happens? So he said this. So Jesus made this so clear. If it's any more clear, he would just draw them a picture and put it right in their face. And what does Peter do? Again, my favorite person. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, Peter. Missed it by that much. Uh, we always look and think the disciples are such dimwits, don't you? You think, man, Peter, you're just, just 10 steps behind, Peter. We are just like the disciples. That's why I love them so much, because they're not these superstars. They're dimwits. They're slow to understand. They do not get it. It's plain. They don't get it. That's the state of an unbeliever like us. Before we heard the gospel, before Jesus saved us, we just didn't get it. It would be clear as day. We just don't see it. But I love this text because we just think, man, Peter just, Peter then responds and rebukes Jesus, the one that he just saw do these miracles and save this blind man's sight, give him sight, and does all these things. And Peter goes, Jesus, come here. Can I just tell you what you're saying is wrong? Just give me a second. Uh, in Matthew, Jesus, or this account recorded, and Peter says, Lord, may it never be. He's telling God, don't do that. What are you thinking? Uh, the Jesus of the Bible is not restricted to what you think or desire. I often forget that. He's God. When trouble comes into my life, when things happen, 
I always think, you know what should have happened? This. You know what I would have done? You know what I always think would be a better idea? We're rebuking the Lord. That's what we're doing. We're saying, no, 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 Lord, I understand what you're trying to do. Let me give you my two cents. I know what I'm talking about. Um, instead, we ought to remember this text here in Romans chapter 11. You've got to turn it. I want to read it for you. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Uh, you probably know this text. It's probably the most beautiful doxology, I think, in the Bible. I could find this. I think Romans is out of my Bible today. There it is. It's in there. Okay, I just got to find it. Romans chapter 11. Paul writes this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? For who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So what Paul is saying is, how dare we try to teach him? How dare we give Jesus advice? How dare we? Who has known his mind? What is he doing? He is infinitely wise. He is good. So we may not understand what the Lord is doing, but we can trust him. We know that he's inscrutable. He's kind. He's a, he really is a, if you're a believer, he really is a good father. He's so kind. He's so patient with us who just don't get it. We need to stamp Proverbs 3, 5 on our hearts. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Don't trust your heart. It's wrong. Do not think what you should have done. It's wrong. If God didn't will it that way, it would have been bad for you. He really does know what he's doing. In verse 33, Jesus responds to Peter's response. So Peter rebukes him. And Jesus says something very heartwarming. I want to read it to you. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Not very meek and lowly there, is he? Very gentle. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When you read that, do Jesus' words seem harsh to you? Jesus. Pull back a little bit. It's Peter. You love Peter. He's going to walk on water at some point. Don't you like Peter? Why did Jesus call him Satan? Isn't that odd? Peter probably has in mind, what he's probably thinking, is, well, the Messiah is going to save us from Rome. Rome is just ripping our people apart. We hate Rome. They're evil. So Jesus comes to save us. And then Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. The Jews are going to kill me. I'm going to die. And, it's, and then I'm going to rise again. And Peter goes, no, you're not. Jesus, let me tell you what's really going to happen. And Jesus calls him Satan. Why is that? I think this is a strong reminder in the Bible that according to the Bible, there is no neutrality. Let me explain what I mean. So Jesus rebukes him and says, your mind is set on the things of what? Man. He doesn't say the things of Satan, did he? He didn't say that. But Jesus assumes that they're the same thing. Did you catch that? He calls him Satan. So to set your mind on the things of man as opposed to things of God, that's satanic. It's a very strong claim Jesus just made. In the world, there is no neutrality. There is no middle ground. So we may think, well, you know, some people are just, they don't like love Jesus, but they're just kind of like, ah, he's all right. That's hatred. The Bible gives two camps of people. You're either in Adam or you're dead and you need to be made alive. And you're, you're an enemy of God or you're his son and he's adopted you and he's redeemed you. There is no middle ground. Well, he's kind of like guys, kind of like man. 
There's no neutrality. So when we see things where there's constant pushing of transgender nonsense and things are just like, what happened? Lord, what happened? What's going on? Well, they're not ripping Jesus. There's no neutrality. They're just not. They're not a friend of the Lord. So people you know in life who may not, they may not have atheist shirts. They may not be angry all the time, but there is no neutrality. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. And it's good news that Jesus rebuked Peter. It's a really good thing to be rebuked by a friend. It would be wrong if Jesus said, you know what, Peter, it's all right. Proverbs 27 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Christian friends, if you have a brother or sister here who is sinning, who is in their sin, it's a really loving thing to pull them out. It's really good to be, not to be harsh, I think to be firm is a good word. It's okay, you need to warn them. If your children are going to walk in the road, if my son, who's almost three, who is so fast, I can't imagine where it came from, were to run in the road and I were to say, Jude, come back and grab us by his arm, it's very firm. It's a loving thing for me to pull him out of the road. It's very loving. It's danger. Jesus sees Peter's drift. Peter, this is really bad what you just said. So it's a faithful wound. It's a loving rebuke. Sometimes in our life, the Lord finds it loving to rebuke us, though it may sting. He loves his children, but he will discipline us with his rod. Charles Spurgeon said this, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me up against the rock of ages. Isn't that a sweet word? We love the pain the Lord sends if it brings us back to him. So his rebukes, maybe they may sting, may hurt. But if the Lord rebukes us, it's for our good. He doesn't want you to wander into the road and be hit by a car. He wants you to be near him, to be against the rock of ages. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on the things of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. It's almost the exact same wording here. So here's a question you may, you may be asking. I asked before, do you ever wonder what God thinks about? If God had thoughts, God doesn't have thoughts like, like God doesn't sit here and go, what should I do? So it's kind of a uh, hypothetical, kind of a get, get it in a, a man-centered way of thinking about this. But what does God think about? What is God's favorite thing? What does God love the most? Do you have any idea? According to the Bible, God's highest, grandest, chief, you could say, desire is his own glory. Is that shocking to you? God loves sinners, 100%. But God loves God the most. Because if he loved us the most, that would be breaking what commandment? First and second, right? It'd be wrong. It would be idolatry. We're not God. It's right to love the best thing the most. Jesus is the best thing. The Bible says in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan to slay his son before sin. Ephesians 1 says that God, his speaking of saving sinner, talks about he did it to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. That's why he did it. John 17, 1 and 2 says that Jesus came to glorify God and it's on the cross. And by doing so, God would glorify his son. What's God's highest desire? To show his glory because that's the best thing. Don't you agree? That's the best thing. If God were to hide himself and say, I would just love man, that'd be terrible. We would not see the best thing. So it's really good that Jesus says, 
Peter, this is not the things of God. Do not look at that. Look at the things of God. This is so much better. It's a really good thing that God loves God. It's a really good. So how does this affect me? I'm going to give you an illustration. I think it's really practical to have your mind on things of God or the things of man. Let's say you're at work. You could cut a corner, quote unquote, and it is a guarantee that you would not be caught. Guarantee. No way get caught. This little sinful act you could do, cutting a corner, would bring your company actually, actually more money. It would, be, it would be a beneficial thing. You might get more clientele. You'd save money. You'd save yourself time, heartache. You, you wouldn't be so fresh of the same guy doing the same stuff. You'd save time, energy. You would get recognition from your boss. Way to go. Saving the company money, right? Maybe a cake, a party after. Your coworkers would high-five you. Maybe a small raise, maybe a bonus. Maybe, hey, you know what? Take a day off. You did great today. You'd even be home earlier and catch your son's baseball game. So you, you wouldn't miss the first inning. You'd be there on time. Those are great benefits. But that would be evil. That would be the things of man. Cutting a corner, we just call it that. That's called sin. It's called lying. Does that justify the end? No, that's the things of man. What you ought to do, set your mind on the things of God. What does God say? You shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. So you would work your regular job. You would take the usual amount of time that may be annoying to you for that same person. There would be no recognition. Nobody would care. It would just be, you did your job. Way to go. We all do our jobs. Good job. No praise. Only mediocrity. Just a mundane day at work. You, may, you maybe even miss the first inning of your son's game, which kind of stinks. But the Lord would see it. And he would smile at your obedience. Because that's setting your mind on the things of God. Thinking of Christ above things of man. Do you understand the difference? Isn't that good news? It seems like a loss. But it's not. That's what Christians look like. You would fear God. You want to keep his commandments rather than get the smile of man. That's what you'd want to do. So, saying that. The things of God are the things of man. In this next section, Peter, who just got rebuked by Jesus, Jesus is going to show us what it looks like to set your mind on the things of God. It actually looks like denying, dying, and losing. It's not, very, it's not very chipper. It's not a Hallmark card, but it's great, and I want you to see it. So Jesus, in verse uh, 34, he calls the crowd to himself. So he, the disciples are here, and he says, okay, you know what? Why don't you guys come too? So Jesus is going to open-air preach. In case you thought open-air preaching wasn't a popular thing, Jesus did it. So he says, come, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I want to dissect those quickly here. Deny yourself. First, we must deny ourselves. Not like Peter, who accepted his own desires and said, Jesus, may it never be. He didn't deny himself. Instead, he just let himself out. Instead, we must deny or renounce or refuse or shoot down ourselves. The proper response to coming to Christ is responding to his suffering and death in self-denial. I think Christians do a really good job at denying self. We're really quick at it. We're really good at it. The problem is we never deny ourselves just someone else's self. I am married. I am really good at calling my wife sin real good. I got like a spiritual gift almost. I'm so good at it. 
It's like I'm some kind of test, probably. I can find it. I'm really good at saying, man, that guy did a That was a bad thing you just did. Honey, he is. Calm down a little bit. Don't yell at the kids like that. Or brother, what? You shouldn't have sinned. That was such folly. What are you thinking, dork? <laughs> I'm really good at denying self, just not myself. That's the problem. We're all gifted at being critical and harsh and gossipy or rude. And we see that in others and say, hey, you ought not do that. But Jesus says, you must deny yourself. We must kill our own self. We must deny it. We must push it down. Uh, John Newton, probably one of my favorite men to walk the planet. He said, our worst enemy is Mr. Self. It's me. I'm my worst enemy. I'm the problem. Mr. Self. He's really smart. He's my greatest foe. He's like a, a Trojan horse. He's just hidden inside me. He's in there just springing out and attacking me. He's evil. It's me. It's bad kale. It's inner me. It's bad. Jesus commands us to deny ourselves, to renounce ourselves and follow him. We would call this repentance. Denying yourself is repenting. It's to turn from your sin, to turn from self. And in a culture where the world says, embrace yourself. Friends, follow your heart. You be you. Feelings matter more than truth. Whatever you feel is right. You, your truth. That is absolutely wrong. Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny, deny, deny. You are not correct. Deny yourself. It's the first step of being a Christian. And while a Christian, it's probably the hardest thing to continue. This is a difficult command, but love for Christ will sweeten your labors for it. I promise. So deny yourself. Next, Jesus says, take up your cross. We must not only deny ourselves, but also crucify ourselves. So don't just say, hey, Mr. Self, just take a step back. Jesus says, kill him. He needs, he needs to die. Jesus taught that he would literally suffer and die. He actually bore his own cross as a means of embracing shame, rejection, and suffering in obedience to God for the joy set before him. If you were listening in the crowd, um, and Jesus were to say to pick up your cross, it wouldn't be a cute thing. Like, I've gone to, like, stores, and you know, people have cross. I'm not against cross necklaces. I think they're great. I'm not against those things. People have, like, cross, like, on their jeans or, like, a shirt. You know, like, cool design, man. Cool cross. That's like putting the electric chair on your neck in this culture. It's like saying, lethal injection. Woo! It's like getting a, a tattoo of a, of a lethal injection. What would that look like? I don't even know. Or electric chair and saying, this, I love this. Let, let's celebrate that. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not attractive to the Jews or to this century. This is a, the cross was a mechanism of torture. It was meant to help you die really slow. It's estimated that in Jesus' time, there are about 30,000 Jews crucified. Can you even fathom that number? I mean, 30,000, that's just an insane amount of people. And typically, they're crucifying, Romans are crucifying, on the road into Rome. So as you're walking in, you would see these men naked, hanging, and screaming in pain. And you would think, I will not cross Caesar. I'm not going to mess with him. If I do, that'll be me. And Jesus is saying, you must pick up your cross. He knew what he was talking about. Jesus knew that to pick up your cross is a shameful thing. There's loss involved. It's painful. We don't just leave Mr. Self in the dirt. We must kill him. Again, Spurgeon said that our flesh, our self, is dead, but it dies really slow. Do you feel that? If you're in Christ, your sin is dead. It's been killed on Jesus. But man, it sure does die awfully slow every day. It just, can you just die already? Can I stop sinning one day, please? 
Aren't you ready for that? Ready to stop sinning? Isn't that a good day to look forward to? Romans 8 and Colossians 3 both command us to put your sins to death. So you may be asking, how do I do that? How do I kill my own self? Sounds weird. Jesus isn't asking you to mutilate yourself. He's not saying that. How do you put your, excuse me, yourself to death? Romans 6 says that our old self, if you have a King James, it says the old man. I like that wording. The old man was crucified with Christ. When Christ died, you're united to him by faith, and your Mr. Self, your sin, died with Jesus. Romans 6, 11, Paul says this. So, in light of that, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So, if, you, if you're united to Christ by faith, you are under his lordship. He's your lord. He's your master. You do what he says. You consider yourself dead to sin. So because you're dead to sin, act like it. If, if you have died with Christ, live like it. That's, that's the command, right? Galatians 5.17 says that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. They are opposed to each other. So brothers and sisters, I have a question to ask you. Do you have an eternal struggle with sin? Do you find sin? Oh, why'd I do that? Man, not, oh, I got caught again. Boss is mad at me again. Mom's mad at me again. Spouse is mad at me again. Do you go, oh, why did I sin against God? I hate sin. Why did I do that? Do you have that? Do you have a struggle? Is there a temptation? Is there a battle? Do you resist the devil? Do you have fight? When a Puritan said, um, the Christian life is military. It's just a fight. It's a daily fight. So we fight our sins by faith. Here's what I mean. By faith, you know Jesus died for your sins. You know he absorbed your debt, absorbed your penalty, and you're freed from sin's power. Therefore, by faith, I will trust and obey that to obey Jesus is better than sin. That's how you fight your sin. So when you're tempted to cut time off, to cut that corner, I could save time, money, boss, give me a high five. Worth it. I could cheat on that test. No one's going to see it. I can get away with anything I want. To fight your sin is to look at Christ and say, it is better to obey than sin. Because by faith, I know that's better. I know that Jesus is better than sin. That's how you fight your sin, by faith, not by some actual sword. You fight with the sword of the Spirit, the Word. So you put your sin to death. You kill it by obedience. Jesus is better than sin. Do you believe that? That's the claim of the Bible. So follow me, Jesus says next. Follow me. This is the flip side. So deny yourself and follow Christ. It's, almost, it's the exact opposite. If you're merely putting off the old man and not putting on the new man, you're not obeying Christ. Many sinners can put away sin. I've met a lot of sinners who can say, I'm, I'm going to stop getting drunk in college. Great. I'm going to stop sleeping with that person. Great. Is that denying yourself and following Christ? No. You're just denying self. If you've ever been on a diet, you deny those Oreos. Boy, is that hard. I mean, double stuffed, crying out loud. That's good to deny that. That's great. But if you're not following the diet, you're not doing anything. You're just denying. Anyone can deny. Jesus is saying you can't just deny. You need to follow Christ. Sinners, unbelievers, don't follow Christ. They, they can deny all they want, but they need to follow Christ. The Christian life is one of dying to self in order to follow Christ. It means you embrace the suffering of the cross. You embrace shame, reproach, and pain that following Christ will, will bring. 
Jesus said, if they call me Satan, how much more will they malign you? They will go after you too. To follow Christ means to embrace humiliation, like the cross. It was a shameful thing. Friends, may we never expect that Christian life will make life easier. It literally does the exact opposite. It makes things harder. Being a Christian is hard. I can tell you, it's hard. I'm not, I'm not in Canada where I can get arrested. I'm not in North Korea where people get killed. But being a Christian is hard. Wherever you are, it's hard. It's a hard thing to be a Christian. You look like a fool. You get called narrow-minded, bigot, stupid. You do. So maybe we remind ourselves, remind believers that Paul said this in Acts 14, 22, when he was talking to these new converts. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is just kind of step one. It's his encouragement. You're going to suffer. Become a Christian. You're going to suffer. But it's better to follow Christ. 1 Peter 4 says, if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed. The smirks you get, the glances, holy roller, you're pretty cool, Christian. Real cool. You're blessed. Upside down thinking. When the world says, follow your hearts, Christians must follow Christ. Luke 9.23, the parallel account here in Luke, says you must daily pick up your cross. So there's a daily, constant fight. So if you don't have that inner struggle, Jesus would call you to repent. He would say you're not a Christian. He would say to deny yourself, die to sin, repent and believe in me in faith. I will save you. Jesus saved really bad sinners. I know because he saved me. I'm a real bad sinner. So turn from your sins and trust in Christ and God will give you a new heart. But if you are a Christian, I have great news for you. A sign of fighting your sin is a sign that you've been born again. It's a really good thing to have an inner struggle, as frustrating as it is. It means you're alive. It means you're not floating dead downstream, like Ephesians 2 says. You're alive in Christ. Fighting your sin, having a struggle, means you're alive. You don't think like a sinner anymore. You still are one, but you, don't, you, have a, you think differently. You act differently. You want different things. But here's the sad news. Do you ever set your mind on the things of man? Sure do. Do you always deny yourself? I don't. That's why my wife and I fight. That's why I'm impatient. It's not because of circumstances. It's because Mr. Self, Mr. Kale is kind of a jerk. Don't cut me off in traffic. I will, I'll be angry with you. I kill people in my heart all the time. You can't stop on a freeway. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Anyway. Can't, oh, it drives me nuts. The freeway. Keep going. Anyway. That's evil. I don't deny my flesh sometimes. I often entertain thoughts I shouldn't entertain. I pursue sins that I shouldn't pursue. I fall into sin. I don't always set my mind on the things of God. But if you're a Christian, know this. Jesus did. He did it in your place. Jesus' perfect obedience wasn't just actions and words. It was his thought life too. His desires. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. He loved God. His mind was always set on the things of God. John 4 says he always did what was pleasing to the Father. Isn't that good news? Because we don't do that. And by faith alone, that is credited to your account. So when God sees you, he didn't see some wretched, filthy person like me. He sees his son. 
by faith, God counts that to me. Jesus obeyed in my place, and therefore I want to obey more. I don't want to sin. I want to obey. Lord, help me. Boy, I need your help. John MacArthur rightly says that self-denial, cross-bearing, obedience to Christ, these don't earn salvation, but they're the fruits that show that you are saved. It's what sprouts from a heart that's been born against. It doesn't make you a Christian. It shows you are a Christian. Again, if you don't remember any names I'm quoting here, remember this one. Spurgeon, again, says this. No one says it quite like Charles Spurgeon. Let me just put it that way. Oh, sir, if I had a dear brother who'd been murdered, what would you think if I valued the knife that was stained with his blood? If I made friends with a murderer, daily consorted with the, the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart, surely I, too, would be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the, of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Oh, that there was an abyss as deep as Christ's misery, that I might at once hurl this dagger of sin into its depths, whence it might never be brought to light again. Do you see her sin that way? Oh, Lord, help me not to sin. I keep doing it. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. This is Jesus' argument. If you uphold your life, you try to save your life. You try to save your sins. You try to pamper up Mr. Self. The things of man and the things of God, that's your life after all. You're on earth doing those things. Jesus says you will perish. The world every day beckons with you. Indulge your sin. It's good. Sin all the more. Eat, drink, be merry. That's the world's command. C.S. Lewis said, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get nothing. Friends, if we live just for the world, you will just die. You will get nothing. But if you seek Christ, the earth will just be like, I don't like a carry-on. Well, I'm here. I just got to deal with it. There's heavy baggage. I'll just deal with it while I'm here. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that it's better if you cut off your hand and tear out your eye than to go to hell with two hands and two eyes. Because it's better to cut your sin off now before Christ cuts you off. A terrifying thought. May it encourage you to flee from your sin. Verse 35, Jesus says, But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Again, it just, just seems so upside down. Why would you want to lose your life, Jesus? I like my life here. I got a decent car and middle class. I'm middle class. I'm doing all right. I have cake sometimes. Pretty good life here. Jesus says, If you try to save your life, you try to, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, the key thing is for my sake and the gospels. Self-denial does not save a sinner. You can't just merely change outward behavior. You can't just brush up the outside and think, well, I'm not sinning real bad, so I'm probably okay. If I just go to church, I will be all right. Jesus is not impressed by that. He had harsh words in Matthew 23 for people like that. They're whitewashed tombs inside full of dead man's bones. That's not a very sweet sentiment. Jesus is saying is, if you deny yourself and follow Christ for the sake of him and the gospel, you will actually save your life. Remember, again, the gospel is better. Jesus is better. My wife has a very, I love my wife's conversion story because it's not the typical story. Um, she said I could tell it, so there you go. Um, she grew up in a Methodist house. Uh-oh. <laughs> Just kidding. She's okay. Uh, Baptist here. Methodist. Anyway. 
Uh, her father was a Methodist pastor, still is one. Um, lived in the parsonages, lived in all these churches. My wife was never truly converted. She would go to church, go to youth group, do all the Christian things, have the Christian friends. As soon as she went off to college, get drunk every, every, every other day, just get hammered all the time. And one day, my wife woke up, obviously before we're married, because she's not my wife yet. And she woke up and understood that she was not a Christian. She just knew, because she would go to church the next Sunday, just hammered, hangover, just, I'm going to go to church, because I ought to. And my wife, one morning, woke up and repented of her sins. I can't do this anymore. I need to follow Christ. She cut off all her friends. Didn't even just talk, just left them all. Cut off their old stinking boyfriends, a win for me over here. Ditched everything, just went literally alone, no friends, nothing. And just got on her computer and just typed in a sermon and providentially found, not Joel Steen, she found John MacArthur, which is just, way to go, honey. She forsook her entire life, literally everything, because she would say that it's better if I cut it all off to be a Christian. That's better, do you understand that? That's what it looks like, to choose Christ over your sin daily. That's the command. So now the way of the cross is to, to, not, to deny, to die, and to lose your life, that you may save it. At times it may not feel right, doesn't look correct, feels weird, but that's the glory road. Lastly, Jesus is going to give us a warning. He's going to warn you to glory. <clears throat> I have a favorite song called Standing on the Promises. You probably know it. Standing on the promise. I won't sing it because that would be terrible. <coughs> but uh, we love the promises of the Bible. Don't we? we love those promises. Oh, baby, we love them. Standing on the promises of Christ my King. We love those things. They bolster us. They rightly give you faith. They should. They point your heart upward. They remind you of who Christ is. I mean, for crying out loud, you should love these things. <coughs> but do you ever read the warnings in the Bible? You probably think, yeah, I do for that guy next to me. <laughs> They're written for you, too. They're not just for people who are unbelievers. Oh, well, this section just for me. That's, that's what I should think. This section for the bad people, right? The warnings, if you're a Christian, are actually for you, too. Did you know that? For instance, again, in Mark chapter 9, the next thing Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Does that text bother you a little bit? If you're a Christian and you're sinning, Jesus says, you better cut the hand off or you're going to go to hell too. Jesus, relax. What is he saying? It's a loving warning. Again, I yank my son out of that road. It's loving. You better not walk in that room and get hit by a car. Will he really get hit by a car? Yeah, he will. If you don't cut off your sin, will you really, if you live in unrepentant deliciousness of sin, will you go to hell? Yes, you will. I believe that if you're in Christ, you'll never be cast out. I was pretty clear on that. But if you live in unrepentant sin, you are not of Christ. You need to repent. These warnings are legit. They're terrifying. But they're for our good. They're for you to Fight your sin to flee. I don't want to sin like that. Jesus, please help me. I don't want to sin that way ever. Please help me. They meant to do those things. 
For is it proper man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? Verse 35 and 36. In 1 Kings 10, Ecclesiastes 2, we see all of Solomon's stuff. Do uh, you guys have a garden at your house, like, like a cute garden? Y'all got one of those? Solomon didn't plant gardens. He planted forests, okay? You may have a wife or a spouse. Solomon had like 700. Solomon just had everything better. He had bigger. The American dream Solomon invented, okay? Just bigger, better, and more. And if you know Solomon, he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, it is all vanity. It's just bleh. Who cares about that? That's Jesus' argument here. You must think of the things of the world as vanity. But sin is deceitful. Um, one Halloween, I didn't do this. I'd be mean, but it was funny. But I saw it. Uh, some people got some onions and dipped them in caramel and put a stick in them. <laughs> you know where I'm going. And just let people just take bites of them. What does that look like to you? Well, is it evil? But you, if you look at you, you go, man, that looks so good. What do you think? Shiny. Even smells like caramel. Looks so good. And you take a bite and you instantly go, ah, onions. <laughs> Friends, that's what sin is like. It looks, ooh, that looks good. Oh, one more look at that. One more, one more taste of that. And you bite your sin. And what do you always do? Ah, gross. Don't you? Don't you do that? Sin is deceitful. There's always a hook under the bait. There's always poison in it. It's never what it promises. It always overpromises and underdelivers every single time. So Jesus says to flee from your sin. His last warnings in verse 38 are this. For whoever is ashamed of me. Peter was ashamed of Jesus when he was betrayed, was he not? I don't know don't know him. I find this text to be a final mark on what Jesus called us to do with his son. That to deny himself and follow Christ is very outward. I'm sorry, it's very inward. So I'm not going to sin. It's an inward. No one sees your thought life. No one sees what you do, what you think. But to not be ashamed of Christ, that's an outward display. Can we agree on that? People will see how you act. Will you act like a fool? Will you publicly renounce Christ? Peter did. Your day of testing may come soon. If you're in Christ and you've identified him as your king, you will obey him. You will fight for obedience. Yet we do not always obey. Like brainless sheep, we are prone to wander. And he must gather us back. Friends, will you be ashamed of Jesus? I hope that you will not be. Will you recoil when he calls you to do something? I want to read you something that's so encouraging. Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother. Y'all ever have that weird uncle in your family? That weird guy? If you can't think of him, you probably are him. Okay? Which guy is it? Mr. Self. That weird person, you go, oh, there's Phil again doing that weird thing. There's Mike. And you go, yeah, that's my uncle over there. He's, he's weird. Jesus is not ashamed to call you a sinner his brother or sister. Isn't that good news? He is not ashamed of you. Hebrews 11 says that God is not ashamed to be called your God. Do you have kids that are wild, crazy? There's my son again. If you're a Christian, 
God's not ashamed to call you his child. Isn't that good news? He's not ashamed because you're united to Christ by faith, not because you're so spanky, not because you're so cool or funny or clever. You're sinful, but Jesus absorbed your sin and gave you righteousness. He is not ashamed to call us sinners, therefore, sinners though we are, therefore he calls us brothers. God's name is not ashamed to be called your God because of the work of Christ, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever.